0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org, or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Please join me in prayer. Our God in heaven, we know that you are three in one: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've been in relationship within yourself for all eternity and now you call us in the gospel into relationship with you and Father thank you so much uh, that you speak to us, that you communicate yourself uh, to us and that we can dwell on something of your word now. Father we pray that you would work in us, uh, that as people in communion with you Uh, that you'd be at work in our lives, even now, even this morning, to have these words uh, dig deep into our hearts and minds and lives. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Who said it? What was on their mind when they said it? And what was their life like at the time? Who said it? What was on their mind when they said it? And what was their life like at the time? This week I came across a catchy little phrase, which I'll I'll share with you in a moment, and it got me thinking about the importance of knowing the answers to those three questions when you come across uh, these catchy little phrases, knowing a little bit more uh, than just the phrase itself. Who said it? What was on their mind? And what was life like for them? Uh, Here's the phrase. Scripture contains the perfect rule of a good and happy life. Say it again. Scripture, here's the catchy phrase, contains the perfect rule of a good and happy life. Now, if I told you that uh, that that came from a single white lad in middle-class America steadily working his way to the top of some corporate ladder somewhere in a suit, well, take it or leave it, right? (laughs) Right? because what would he know? Uh, Inexperienced, naive, hasn't seen enough of the world to know what the good life is like, let alone what kind of advice you'd want to follow to attain it. Who said it, what was on his mind and what was life like? Scripture contains the perfect rule of a good and happy life. Those words come to us actually from who? From a man named John, John Calvin, And what was on his mind? Well, our passage actually, chapter two, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 16 and 17, we'll read them in just a second to be precise. What was life like for him? Well, this is where it gets very interesting indeed because John Calvin lived, of course, back in the 1500s. 1500s, cast your mind back there, what do you know from the 1500s? The 1500s were among the most tumultuous years for the church in Europe that we've seen. The 1500s were the years, of course, of the Reformation, that big split between Protestant churches like ours and the Roman Catholic Church uh, uh, historically. Those words come from one of the guys at the spearhead of that, the pointy end of that, John Calvin, when the greatest powers in Europe were against him and his cause. Scripture contains the perfect rule of a good and happy life, he says. And he wouldn't have said it if he didn't believe it and he couldn't have said it if it didn't check out to some degree, even in his life, even in his circumstance. And here's the realisation that I'd like us to start with as we come to this chapter in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, those scriptures that John Calvin spoke about way back then, they're not very far from us, are they? In fact, I can see Sarah holding them in her hands right now, I can see Alex with them tucked under his notebook. They're in our hands. Those scriptures, they're not far from us. They are within reach. They're in our hands for many of us right now. And so with all that in mind, take take a look at our theme verse for today. Uh, It's kind of the heart of the message uh, in this chapter and and Calvin's inspiration. Chapter uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. Have a look there. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Today, I'd basically like to make the case that the God-breathed Holy Scriptures, that they're enough for us, that they are good for us, that they will cover us in life. Just as they were good for John Calvin in his day, in the, the trouble of the, uh, uh, the 16th century, the 1500s, just as they were good for, sufficient for Paul and Timothy in their day, God's Word to us, He's given us all that we need all that we need to be thoroughly equipped. I have three basic points, I'll give them to you up front so you know where we're going. The God-breathed scriptures, they are enough for us, firstly, number one, when the world has gone mad, secondly, when leaders have gone bad and thirdly, when our memory starts to go. Let's take them in that order. Uh, This is no word from a a naive ivory tower. These were Paul's parting words, you'll remember, from the squalor of a Roman jail, a jail in Rome, to his protege Timothy across in Ephesus uh, uh, and um, with all of the trouble that was going on in his church that we've begun to get some hints at um, as we go through. So firstly, God's word has got what it takes. Firstly, when the world has gone mad, When the world has gone mad. Read that first paragraph of the the chapter along with me, awful uh, as it may read. Chapter uh, 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Paul starts out by saying there are are going to be seasons in this era, in these last days between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, there are going to be seasons and some of them are going to be awful, these awful people who, as we'll see even more in just a moment, do awful things. Keep your distance, Timothy, don't get muddled up with them, says Paul, have nothing to do with them. Now, perhaps you're thinking, as uh, we've just read that paragraph again, perhaps you're thinking that with a list like that, of course he'd want nothing to do with them. Can you imagine wanting to have very much to do with folks like that? Of course he'd keep his distance. Why would anyone cuddle up with folks like that versus one to five? But hang on a moment, let's just look carefully here. Two things should have stood out to us from that paragraph. Firstly, we've got to remember that in a sense, they're just people, these people. They're just, they're flawed people, yes, but they're like anyone else in most respects. In fact, the language is interesting. We're told in verse 2 twice and then again in verse 4 that they are lovers, that they love things and they value things, things are important to them. They're just people and yes, those loves are a bit out of whack, they love pleasure instead of God, verse 4, they love themselves, presumably instead of others, they love money, And then when anything threatens those things that they love, well one presumes that that's when some of those other traits come out, treacherous, slanderous, uh, arrogant, proud. But second, yes they're people but did you notice where these people are? Did Timothy have to go far to get muddled up and cuddle up with them? The list starts as if Paul is talking about society in general, says Chris Green. There will be terrible times in the last days. People, you might say, out there will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. But the list ends with a clear focus on the church and especially its leaders. Verse five, having a form of godliness but denying its power. So Chris Green's saying he concludes: far from being a report on the world from the church, it is actually a report on the worldliness of the church. At least that's how it concludes. Now, at first I thought, that's ridiculous. Well, okay, maybe back then, right, maybe they were facing that back then in Ephesus, yes, they had worldliness in their church, okay, but surely not us today, right? Surely we're not beset by the same problems in the church today but then Chris Green gives this modern example which I thought, gosh, that, you know, I'd found it hard to imagine but the thing is every culture has its own little sins, its respectable sins, the things that you'd overlook, that you wouldn't even challenge a fellow brother or sister on, the things we excuse, the things that we don't even talk about and Chris Green reckons for us here in the 21st century, well, look what it Look look how it might appear, dressed up in our clothes. He says, our culture is becoming increasingly godless and increasingly technologically efficient. What more simple temptation for pastors could there be than thinking that the reason we are ineffective is because we don't have the right technology. This last quarter century, he says, has seen millions of dollars which could have been spent on training and employing an army of evangelists, preachers and church planters. Those millions of dollars instead being spent on rebuilding, repainting, re-carpeting and refurnishing buildings where the lovers of saint money can see their God being worshipped. Most evangelical Christians, he says, are not moved to wonder by a great cathedral or an artist's masterpiece, but perversely, we're more excited by a new carpet than a new convert. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud. You can start to see it now, can't you? What it might look like, dressed up in 21st century clothes, it's not that carpet's bad, I'm a fan of carpet and look, I know this is a hot issue for us in a way because I know that our board of management is thinking about what do we need to do to this venue at the present time and that's good and I'm I'm so glad we've got the people on our board of management that we've got thinking about these things, planning about these things, thinking about how best to spend the money that we just collected. But the question is, why? Is it for our own pleasure and ease or is it for the Gospel, do you see? are we driven by a desire to see more people wise for salvation in Christ and so we spend the money on the carpet or on the new chairs or on the, whatever it needs to be or are we driven for by a desire to say oh i go to that church looks pretty good doesn't it do you see the difference even when the world has gone mad timothy god's word has got what it takes stick to it it's sufficient it'll thoroughly equip you. Board of Management, it'll thoroughly equip you. It'll thoroughly equip us as a church. Let's move on though. Secondly, to use Calvin's phrase, Scripture is God's perfect rule for a good and happy life. Yes, when the world has gone mad, firstly, but even secondly, when leaders have gone bad, when leaders have gone bad, secondly. This uh, next paragraph from verse 6 and following, we're just about to read, I find it hard reading. I don't know if you found this as uh, Pia read it to us just before. I find it hard reading. I don't like reading about weak-willed women. It makes me feel a little bit as though I'm saying something about women generally or women in comparison to men, which of course isn't Paul's point at all. Paul's point here is look how low these guys will stoop. Look how low these guys will stoop. These guys have no scruples about exploiting, about taking advantage of the most vulnerable people in our communities. They'll stop at nothing. Uh, Read with me from verse 6 of chapter 3, please. Have nothing to do with them, the end of verse 5. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth, just as Janus and Jambres, we think those are the 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 magicians from uh, Pharaoh's court back in uh, the story of the Exodus, who kind of challenged Moses and, in a sense, uh, strung out the disaster that befell Egypt. Anyway, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these men, they opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected, but they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. The upshot is, isn't it, please don't think for a second that no one would ever stoop so low, Timothy. I read that paragraph and uh, I wonder, you know, it is so specific, It's almost like Paul's seen it before in the way that he describes these women, in the way that he describes the manipulation of these men who go into their homes. It is like he has seen it before, like he knows it, like he could supply names there if he needed to. These are the kind who go on and do this in this specific circumstance and it looks like this and it ends like that. Don't think for a second that no one would ever stoop so low women whose lives were just a mess, who were caught up in sin, who were trapped and who tragically could just never seem to grasp, never seem to get Jesus. The irony, of course, is that a genuine gospel minister could have been such a real blessing to these people in that kind of a circumstance. The scriptures could have made them wise for salvation as it did Timothy. The Bible, verse 16, could have seen them set straight and trained and helped, corrected in their life, rebuked where they needed it. It could have been such a blessing out of a hole in life and towards righteousness, towards mending, towards having their lives put back together around the Lord Jesus. The irony is that a gospel minister could have done so much there. That's not what happened. I'm so thankful that we, we live in a time where we've got great stuff like Child Safe. Why is that? Well, number one, are there people this vulnerable in Howrah? I think there are. I think we know some of them. Number two, do, do leaders still go bad? You, you don't even need to ask that question in an era of royal commissions and ev- all the rest, do you? Number three, what is the answer for them? Well, it... Child safe's not the answer, actually. I mean, ultimately, the women Paul knew needed Jesus. They needed the truth. They needed forgiveness from God. They needed the Word of God in their lives so that they could put their lives back together around Jesus. But here is the thing, you'd be nuts to go about ministry just trusting in the godliness of men, wouldn't you? They needed the Word of God in their lives. Child safe isn't the answer they need, but it is the structure to make sure that we have the right conversation and have it with integrity and are able to keep going at it. They will stop at nothing, they will always stoop lower, have nothing to do with them. And lastly, God's Word has got what it takes. Yep, when the world's gone mad, even when leaders have gone bad, And lastly now, that is true, God's Word has got what it takes, even when your memory starts to go, even when you're starting to lose sight of Jesus, even when intense persecution and waves of pain and serious opposition that would wear you down, that would knock the stuffing out of you. if you keep your eyes on Jesus, then God's Word has got what it takes. Uh, Read with me from verse 10, just that last paragraph there now. You... Timothy, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, you can read about them in the book of Acts afterwards, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Perhaps just to, uh, to rub in what it looks like to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, what it looks like to believe that those scriptures are near us, are with us, are ours, are the ones in our hands. Just to rub that in, let me uh, give you just a handful of reflections, some possibilities, some possible applications for our lives. Take them or leave them, depending on what's relevant to you right now, I'll just rattle five off. Number one, the best place for your Bible is not on the shelf. Uh, I know that tidy homes, well, I'm told that tidy homes live by the idea that there's a place for everything and everything in its place. Might be the recipe for a tidy home, but it's the recipe for a messed up life if your Bible lives on the shelf. Where should it live? It should live in your hands. It must live in our hands. If we're firmly convinced that God's Word is His Spirit-powered, all-sufficient, thorough-equipping toolbox for every part of life, then what would we do keeping it on the shelf? Remember Timothy, indeed, he only had the Old Testament plus the verbal teachings about Jesus. We've got them in our Scriptures now. All together, the sufficient words of the Scriptures to us. The best place for the Bible is not on the shelf. Relatedly, number two, Spurgeon once said, a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. In other words, use it. Don't just have it in your hands, get familiar with it. Read it, read it by yourself, put bits of, you know, verses of it on your fridge, bring it to church, follow along, highlight, underline, whatever you've got to do. Um, Dare I say it, but the great blessing that is our slides, may be. I wonder about this, sometimes a bit of a curse in disguise. And I I tread carefully here because I know that our vision guys, they do such a wonderful job of always having it ready for us, ready to go, um, right on screen. And for some of us, with our vision, actually, that is a massive help. But I just wonder, might you get more out of church if you bring your Bible along? Might might you get more out of church if you read along and check things out and cross-check? And which verse was that again? The vision guys can only do so much. Might it send a stronger message to our kids and our grandkids that we live by the Word of God? that we're here to be taught, even to be rebuked and corrected and trained and that that's a Bible thing, we live under the Word of God, it thoroughly equips us for everything that comes. Thirdly, even when it hurts, that is, even when it's inconvenient or requires, even when it's rebuking or correcting, to put it another way, if you ignore the words that God has given you about life in this world... Don't expect that thorough equipping for every good work thing to kind of work out. Jim Packer put it like this, he said, uh, appealing to Christians, he said, live by the light that you have as to the bearing of Scripture on your life and you shall have more light. Neglect the light that you have and you will actually darken it so that in the outcome you will have less. He says, this solemn alternative faces every Christian every day of his or her life. Follow it even when it hurts. Number four, more quickly now, don't skip church. You know, just just practically, hours in the week. Is there any other time in your week when you spend more effort, more thought, more care in the Scriptures than in this half hour right now? Now, I'm not talking up my preaching at the moment. I just mean, you know, in the context of my week, when is the time when I get more in the Scriptures than Sunday morning? Don't skip church. And number five, lastly, and in fact, I'll conclude with this. Who said it? Why did he say it? Remember, it is God's word to thoroughly equip us to live lives in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. So at the end of the day, we look to and we rely on the God who has forgiven us, saved us, spared us, who is saving us, who has called us and who empowers us to even overcome sin and live for Him and that means that He'll ask from me more than I can do because He's God and that means that He'll ask things from me that feel beyond me and feel way too much and feel too heavy a burden to bear at times, are they? But it also means that it is my Heavenly Father asking It is your heavenly Father asking and calling on you, speaking to us in fatherly love with our good and happy life in his heart. Scripture contains the perfect rule of a good and happy life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there are times in our life, in our week, when we forget that you are there, forget that you are here, so near to us, and forget that you have spoken for our good. God, thank you so much for your word amongst your people to teach, rebuke, correct and train. Father, we long to bear lives that show the resemblance of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you carry that work on in us. Thank you that you have placed the tool for that, your Word by your Spirit in our very hands, Father, your Spirit in our hearts. And dear God, we pray, would you have us be a people ever more reliant on your Word, willing to be challenged by it, eager to be challenged by it, willing to live according to your guidance, your word, that we might live lives that are good and happy under Christ, even when they are not easy and smooth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.